Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Remember, this parable was an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And this parable teaches us, first of all, a true neighbor is anyone in need. It doesn't matter whether it's a friend, a family member, a stranger, or an enemy. If somebody has a need, they are your neighbor, Jesus said. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Most people would say that the parable of the Good Samaritan is about loving your neighbor and showing compassion. And while that's certainly true, it's only one half of the story. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress reminds us that Jesus' famous parable initially began with this all-important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Over the past several weeks, you've heard me talk about the exciting Gospel Advance Matching Challenge. It's important that you know that this Monday, July 4th, is the final day to take advantage of this wonderful opportunity to double your impact with a generous gift. A generous group of friends have put together this $500,000 matching challenge. And so, until midnight on Monday, July 4th, your generous gift of $100 becomes $200. A gift of $500 becomes $1,000. A gift of $10,000 would become $20,000. You choose the amount. And plus, when you give a generous gift, I'll say thanks by sending you the brand new children's book I've written, Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. It's fully illustrated for the child in your life. As a pastor, I've always had a heart for reaching young children with the truth of the Bible. But when my daughter and son-in-law brought triplets into the world, my passion for kids was magnified. Remember, children can easily absorb the truth of God's Word when it's presented by someone they trust. And nothing is more important than passing along these timeless lessons from Jesus to the next generation. So, while there's still time, be sure to request your copy of my new book, Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. The deadline for the matching challenge and the deadline for requesting my new book is Monday, July 4th. Now, it's time to return to a message I introduced on yesterday's program. We're looking at a passage in Luke chapter 10, in which Jesus engaged in a lively conversation with a lawyer. I titled my message, A Stranger in Need Meets a Neighbor Indeed. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Today, we are concluding our series, Jesus' Greatest Stories, a study of the parables by looking at perhaps one of the best known parables. It's a parable that we often call the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we see beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, the occasion uh, that caused Jesus to tell this story. Look at it with me in verse 25 of Luke 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, This lawyer, this scribe, knew that Jesus was teaching salvation was not by keeping the law. So he was hoping to trap Jesus into publicly setting aside the Old Testament law, therefore making him guilty of blasphemy. So he tries to trap Jesus by saying, teacher, what shall I do 
to inherit eternal life. Now look at verse 26. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? In other words, you're the expert, Mr. Hotshot Lawyer. What do you have to do, if that's the way you want to go, to be saved? And so the lawyer answers in verse 27. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28. And Jesus said to him, bingo. A plus, Mr. Lawyer. You have answered this correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, the lawyer said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, he thought if I can redefine neighbor, just maybe, just maybe, I'm good enough to make it into heaven. So in answer to the question, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus told the story that we call the story of the Good Samaritan. Here's the story beginning in verse 30. Jesus replied and said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. Now, this story, though, isn't so much about the victim as it is about the people who walked by the victim. We see the first group represented in verse 31, the apathetic. Verse 31, and by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road And when he saw the man, the victim, he passed by on the other side. Maybe he thought, you know, I spent years in the seminary to be a priest, not to be a doctor. Or maybe as he looked back behind him, he saw somebody else coming. He saw his executive priest. And he said, you know what, I think I'll let him take care of this. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in verse 32. The assistant priest was a little bit behind him. And that Levite, that's what Levites were. They were assistant priests. That assistant priest, he also came to the place and saw him. And he passed by on the other side. Look at verse 33. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now, we've called this story the story of the Good Samaritan. But that was unthinkable to this audience that heard this story. The Good Samaritan? It would be like today, uh, calling together a group of family members of those who were killed on September the 11th. Calling them together and saying to them, today I'd like to preach a message to you. The title of the message is, The Good Terrorist. And so they were treated with great disdain. But in verse 33, it said it was that Samaritan who was on the journey. He came upon this man who was in the street, and when he saw him, something bubbled over. An emotion of empathy, and he stopped, and he did what was necessary to take care of that need. I want you to notice exactly what he did with this person who was left for dead. Verse 34 says, he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds. The only way he could bind up this man's wounds probably was to tear his own expensive, you know, garment there and to rip it off and to wrap up this man's wounds. And not only did he do that, but notice what else he did. He poured oil. That was a balm that soothed the pain. And then he poured wine on the wounds and antiseptic. And then he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and he took care of them. 
And on the next day, which by the way means he must have spent the night there, on the next day, the Samaritan took out two denarii. A denarius was one day's wage, so he took out two days' wages and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, here's my visa card, charge it. He didn't say that exactly. But he said, you can bill me. I will be responsible for whatever cost he incurs. You know, this is an amazing thing. The contrast between the Samaritan and the two religious leaders. You see, those two religious leaders were representative of a lawyer's attitude. Let's restrict the meaning of neighbor so that I can even meet that standard. But not the Samaritan. He refused to restrict the meaning of neighbor. He expanded it like Jesus did. One commentator I was reading this week noted, first of all, the Samaritan did not allow legalism to limit his love. Write that down. The Samaritan, unlike the religionist, he refused to allow legalism to limit his love. That is, he didn't concoct his own uh, system of religion that would keep him from ministering to this person who was different than he was. He didn't twist God's law. He didn't use his own prejudice to use as an excuse for not ministering to this person who had been left for dead. And by the way, we need to be careful that we don't do that either. It's very easy to get real holy and righteous and come up with all of these reasons that we don't want to minister to people who are different than we are. Secondly, notice that he didn't allow race or religion to limit his concern. He didn't allow race or religion to limit his concern. The Samaritan could have stopped and he could have said to this man on the ground, he could have said, you know what, I would like to help you, but our skin color is just a little different shade. You're a little darker than I am. You're a full-blooded Jew. I'm only a half-Jew. I don't think I ought to help you. Or he could have stopped and said, you know, I really would have liked to help you, but we have different doctrine. We're not of the same denomination. You full-blooded Jews, you believe Jerusalem is the right place to worship. We Samaritans believe Mount Gerizim is the right place to worship. Maybe somebody of your own kind ought to help you. Now, this Samaritan refused to allow race or religion limit his concern. And the same should be true for us as a church. We should not limit our concern to those people who look like us or believe like us. We're to reach everyone. The church ought to be a slice of heaven. You know, in heaven, everybody's not going to be the same skin color. (laughs) They're not going to be from the same economic background. They won't have had the same IQ. But what they have in common is their love for Jesus Christ. And I believe the local church ought to be a slice of what heaven is. And that's why I love First Baptist Church Dallas. This is a church that is filled with diversity. This is what the church is going to be like. I came across this quote from Dr. Criswell. I just love it. He said, I like a downtown church that has just everybody in it. Black and white, pea green and purple, rich and poor, screwballs and the smartest professors, they're all in this church. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like Dr. Criswell? He's right. And that's what the church ought to be. We should never allow race or religion to limit the people that we reach. And thirdly, notice about this Samaritan He refused to allow inconvenience to limit his sacrifice. He didn't allow inconvenience to limit his sacrifice. Well, you notice something. Verse 33 said, this Samaritan was on a journey. He wasn't just riding around on that donkey looking for something to do. 
He was on a journey. He had business. He was a wealthy man, so it was probably important business. But he was willing to sacrifice his schedule to meet the real need of somebody around him. This week, I went into the office Monday, and man, I had a pile of correspondence, a pile of phone messages to return, all this other stuff coming in and going on. And so I thought, well, I'll start working through the correspondence. So I started going through it. And in the stack, there was an email our media department had sent up to us. It was from a woman um, in Illinois who had listened to one of our messages. And she had written me a very long, involved email about a personal problem she was going through and needed some help. It was a kind of response that couldn't be answered in two or three sentences. It was going to require some time to respond to it. I'm ashamed to tell you what my first response was. My first response was, I don't have time for this. I just don't have time for this. I mean, after all, here's a woman I've never heard of living in some strange state. I've got thousands of my own members that need caring for, and I've got all these programs and appointments and things coming in and so forth. And if I start answering detailed emails like this, you know, there'll be no end to it. And other churches that have this kind of ministry, they hire people to do things like this. And if I, on and on and on I went with rationalizations. And then it hit me. Robert, you're getting ready to preach on the Good Samaritan this Sunday. (laughs) I mean, here is a woman that has a need that you have the capability of meeting. Now, what is it on your calendar that is so important that you can't stop and answer this woman's question? You know, when you look at the life of Jesus, some of his most important miracles were actually interruptions in his schedule. Look at Jesus. He was on his way someplace else when he stopped and he healed the man who had been blind since birth. It was while Jesus was on his way doing something really important that he stopped and healed the woman with the issue of blood. It was while Jesus was involved in one of his greatest sermons. He was right in the middle of it when this disturbance occurred in the ceiling and a man was lowered down, the paralytic, Jesus stopped, healed him, and gave one of his greatest messages on forgiveness. We should never allow personal inconvenience to limit our sacrifice. This Samaritan, for no other reason than something inside of him that bubbled over, he was willing to stop. He did not allow race or religion. He didn't allow inconvenience. He didn't allow legalism to limit his love. For a stranger. What's the point of this message? What what does it say to us? I think it says more than just be nice to people. Let me suggest to you three practical applications from this passage. Jot them down if you will. Remember, this parable was an answer to the question: Who is my neighbor? And this parable teaches us, first of all, a true neighbor is anyone in need. It's anyone in need. It doesn't matter whether it's a friend, a family member, a stranger, or an enemy. If somebody has a need, they are your neighbor, Jesus said. But secondly, Jesus was not really as interested in answering the question of who is a neighbor than who acted like a neighbor. And that's the point you see in verse 36. After Jesus told the story, he said to the lawyer, Now which of these three... The priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? 
And even the lawyer couldn't get out of answering this one. In verse 37, he said, well, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. And that leads to the second principle. A true disciple is one who demonstrates compassion. The true follower of Jesus Christ is one who demonstrates compassion. Remember the passage we read just a moment ago, 1 John 4, 7 and 8? Jesus said this about the measure of our love for him. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It was Dorothy Day who said, I only love God as much as I love the person I love least. Our true measure of our discipleship is our compassion toward other people. And third, a true love, true love meets the needs of others. True love meets the needs of others. Listen to me, love is not some syrupy, sentimental emotion. Love is a willingness to meet the genuine needs of those around us. It may mean expending our financial resources. It may mean sacrificing our time, our plans. It may mean risking our reputation for meeting the greatest needs of those around us. But I was reading this week, as I was preparing for this message, I was reading about the history of our inner city missions. If you're not a member of First Baptist, you may not know, we have a number of chapels of, of, of churches that we sponsor around the city. And um, I was reading about the founding of those missions. Those of you who are long-timers around here, you know the story by heart. But for those of you who don't, I believe it was 1954, it was early one morning, Dr. Criswell came down to his office uncharacteristically early that morning, and as he was entering into his office, he noticed a crowd, smart crowd, gathered around the front steps leading into the sanctuary. Out of curiosity, he went over to see what all the hubbub was about, and as he made his way through the crowd, he noticed a man lying on the concrete steps leading to our sanctuary. He was lying there with his arms outstretched trying to reach the door of our sanctuary. And within a few moments, he breathed his last breath. Dr. Criswell said he didn't know the man's name. Nobody did. Nobody knew his story or why he was trying to enter our church. But something inside Dr. Criswell bubbled over with emotion. And he went to the deacons of our church and to the church and said, we are surrounded by people in this city who have a great need. Let's start ministering to those folks. And out of that experience... Our church founded these inner city chapels. And then years later, out of that came our Dallas Life Foundation. Did you know every year we serve, I think, over 300,000 meals through Dallas Life to those who are in need of food? 500 bed shelter. And then out of that, years later, came our Dallas Pregnancy Center to minister to unwed uh, moms here in our community. But all of those ministries have as their core purpose the meeting of people's greatest need, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to remember. The greatest need of those people around us, those people in your family, in your workplace, in your school, the greatest need they have is to have their sins forgiven and to know Christ as their Savior. A few months ago, 
a documentary crew from out of town came to visit with me. They were going around the country filming a television documentary on the separation of church and state. The person who was to interview me was a member of a religious cult. And so we sat down and we were about 30 minutes into the interview when while the camera was rolling, he said, Pastor, do you believe in the story of the Good Samaritan? I said, well, yes, I do. He said, well, would you mind relating that story to our television audience? I thought, where in the world is this going? But I said, okay, well, here's the story of the Good Samaritan. And I briefly told the story. And then he looked me straight in the eyes with the camera still going, and he said, do you believe I'm your neighbor? And I said, well, yes, you're my neighbor. And then he said, well, if you believe I'm your neighbor then why are you trying to convert me to Christianity? And for a microsecond, I I couldn't understand his logic, but then it, it hit me. He thought that by sharing my faith with him, I was hurting him, I was insulting him, I was injuring him. And so I said to him and to the television audience, this is the reason I'm sharing my faith with you. I believe that Satan and sin has beaten us all up and left us for dead in this world. And that we are in danger of spending an eternity separated from God. The easiest thing for me to do would be to stay silent, to walk on by and say nothing. But I love you enough that I want to share with you not just one way, but the only way you can have eternal life. And that's through Jesus Christ. That's why I'm sharing my faith with you. Folks... That's not just me. That's all of us. Don't ever forget, whether it's a homeless person on the streets of Dallas or a millionaire living in a mansion in Highland Park, people's greatest need is to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Our commitment at Pathway to Victory is to share the good news of the gospel without compromise. Silence is not an option. Speaking the truth in love remains our highest calling. In fact, that's the spirit behind the Gospel Advance Matching Challenge that's active for just a few more days. This coming Monday at midnight, we'll reach the deadline. May I count on you to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory? Your generous gift right now will make all the difference. God has continued to open amazing doors of opportunity for greater influence in our nation and the world. And your partnership will allow us to seize these opportunities as they come. Your gift right now of, say, $100 becomes $200. A $500 gift becomes $1,000. A $5,000 gift would be matched until it becomes $10,000. No matter the amount of your gift, it will help us advance the gospel in America and beyond. And remember, when you give to the Matching Challenge, we'll say thank you by providing the book I've written for your family. It's fully illustrated, and it's called Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. I started this book nearly a year ago. It's designed to help you fulfill one of your biggest duties as a mom or dad or grandparent. In my new book, which is, again, fully illustrated with colorful pictures, I share 10 of Jesus' favorite stories or what we call parables. 
Please, while there's still time, be sure to take advantage of giving a gift during the matching challenge, and let me thank you by sending a copy of Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. As we reach another milestone on July 4th, please know how grateful I am for your generous financial support. While it's my voice you hear on this program, it's your gift that allows Pathway to Victory to pierce the darkness with the light of God's Word. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. Today, when you give a generous gift to support this ministry, we'll send you a copy of the brand new children's book by Dr. Jeffress called Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. To request your copy, call 866-999-2965 or you can visit our website, ptv.org. Now, when your gift is $75 or more, we'll also include the complete CD and DVD sets from our current series called The Parables, Jesus' Favorite Stories. Don't forget, every dollar you give right now will be doubled by another generous donor thanks to our Gospel Advance Matching Challenge. But the clock is ticking, and this opportunity ends July 4th at midnight. So be sure to get in touch today before time runs out. Call us toll-free 866-999-2965 or go to ptv.org. A lot of our listeners prefer to write, if that sounds like you, here's the address. P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. That's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. In recent decades, our government has taken drastic measures to ensure that church and state remain completely separate. But our modern-day interpretation of the separation of church and state actually goes against the vision cast by our founding fathers. Hear a message called, America is a Christian Nation, Friday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.